Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Christ Bible Church in the Twin Cities. I'm Pastor Levi Secord. It is the goal of Christ Bible Church to glorify God by bringing all of Christ into all of life. For that reason, I want you to know that we now offer a second podcast called The Worldview Minute. In it, I seek to demonstrate the universal importance of the Christian worldview by building the theological foundations of our faith and then applying them to all of life. The Worldview Minute aims to produce short, accessible episodes that equip the believer to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord and Lord over all of life. This podcast is available on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and Google. Just search for The Worldview Minute and you can subscribe there. Now let us turn our minds and our hearts to the preaching of God's Word. Lord God, we pause this morning to offer you praise and thanks that you have spoken to us in your Word. We pray that your Spirit, He would be here, active among us, imparting life to your people and life to those who may not yet be your people. Lord, if you do not act, everything we do here is in vain this morning. So we ask in hope and confidence that you would meet us here. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So we've reached the end of uh, 1 Peter. The series began the very first Sunday of March, and I think it's the longest series we've been through together uh, as a congregation. Uh, 1 Peter's been full of a lot of truth and wisdom. It is the Word of God breathed out to us. It is here to equip us, to help us to understand our lives, understand God, understand what He would have us to do. And here, in these last verses, Peter really puts a bow on the end of his book here. He's summarizing where we've been, the main points we've had throughout this book, and chiefly those two main points that we've hit again and again is the sovereignty of God, that He rules over everything, and especially the second point, even sovereign over the persecution of His people, the suffering of His people. How should, then, us as Christians live in an age in which we might be persecuted, hated, despised, threatened with retribution just for simply following Christ. There really are people out there today who find out when a Christian believes Christians things, they're like, I thought none of those people existed anymore. How could you exist? How could you think these things? Well, because we're Christians. It comes with the territory. And Peter here helps us to deal with living in an age in which we feel that in our bones, the strain and the weight of being a Christian. For too long, Us in America, and the church in America, we've been lied to. We've been told that if we just did this whole Christian thing the right way, we would be accepted. We'd just be a part of the group. If we were kind enough, if we had a certain hip style of ministry, if we did enough good works, or maybe if we promoted the right social causes, then the world would accept us, even if they didn't believe in Jesus. Hopefully you've seen, as I've seen, that that's just not true. You can do everything right. You can be the nicest person in the world. And if you are on the opposite side of that one point of today, they won't think you're nice. They won't think you're kind. They won't think any of those things. The storyline of the Bible paints that picture for us again and again, especially here in 1 Peter. Friendship with the world is indeed hostility towards God. We cannot serve both the world and God. If the world hated Christ, and it did, and it does, then it will hate his followers. In this way, much of what is called cultural relevance today 
and cultural acceptance is not a sign of success, but it is a sign of compromise and failure. In other words, if you are popular with those who hate Christ, something has gone wrong, fundamentally. Now, I also want to hasten to say that sometimes reformation and revival within the church have been stunted or thwarted because sometimes churches get overly legalistic. Sometimes, in an attempt not to appeal to the current age, we hold on tightly to the past age and its customs and its standards. Same problem, just different location. Our standard is Scripture, not past culture, future culture, or current culture. But that problem isn't the primary threat the church faces today, so I don't spend a lot of time in that, but the church has this weird tendency in history to overcorrect. We see the problem of one generation, we correct too far in this direction, then the next generation comes back, and it's good because it leaves the next generation something to do, something to correct. The Bible reminds us again and again, especially here in 1 Peter, that we are in the midst of a cosmic war. Like, you should see your life that you are in the midst of a cosmic war, war that defines all of this world. Throughout history, there are ebbs and flows in this conflict. There are times in which evil appears to be winning more than usual, where truth appears to be receding. And I think that today is one of those times. And so Peter gives us a picture of this war at the closing of his letter, that there is this lion lion out there and he is seeking to devour the sheep to put it plainly he's seeking to eat you me he's out there right now and he wants to destroy you last week we saw that the that god has given the church elders and the elders are charged with protecting the sheep in various ways especially from this lion one of my chief jobs as your preaching elder as your pastor is to protect you through the preaching of god's word I take that very seriously. And Peter tells us that this enemy exists. He is cunning. He is hungry. He wants to destroy us. And he tells us in, this, in the context of a church that was being persecuted. So the primary way that Peter's looking at this is those who are being tempted to despair or to leave the faith because they are suffering for being a Christian. And behind that suffering is a satanic foe, the evil one, Satan himself now even for people like me talking about satan can sometimes be uncomfortable because there are those very spiritual people out there if they ever have any problem it was always satan made me do it well satan is not god he can't be everywhere at once and you're probably not that important that satan's focusing all of his time and attention on you and yet Moderns like to think that think believing in a spiritual realm at all, or that Satan and demons and angels exist, that we have evolved past that. We know better now because we have science and we have reason. We can't tell what a woman is anymore. We have our politicians on Capitol Hill arguing about whether or not aliens exist and are so technologically advanced that they visit Earth and somehow get shot down by us. Right? But we have science. We're really advanced now. Nobody believes anything silly anymore. Yeah, just go on social media for five minutes. You'll see that there's a lot of unreasonable people out there. And so the laws we see today, I want you to hear this. The laws we see today, whether it be in Europe, Islamic countries, or even the United States, Canada, enacted against Christians, enacted against sanity in the sexual realm, enacted against protecting kids from butchery, 
at the altar of the transgender, uh, transgender agenda, those laws that target Christian churches and Christian schools. I've talked to leaders of Christian schools in this area many times, and they're always wondering how long they're going to be able to exist before they're forced out of existence. Those types of laws enacted by people, but behind it is a satanic force. We should have no trouble saying that. Do these people worship at the altar of Satan, Satan knowingly? No, but apparently some in Hollywood actually do. We shouldn't be afraid to call evil what it is. It's demonic. It's satanic. Satan is active in this world, and he wants to destroy you. He wants to silence the church. The lion is loose, and he is hungry. And so Peter gives us a summary of that conflict and how you and I are to respond. And I can summarize it this way. You are to resist the lion. You are to resist him and all of his cronies. And this demonstrates for us an eternal, internal threat that we face, an external threat that we face. And then Peter also gives us an internal response and an external hope. So we'll dive in here starting in verses 6 and 7. First, an internal threat. Right, before you want to talk about Satan's influencing you or demons or anything like that, first we have to look inside. Verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. There is a threat in each of us, and that is the threat of pride, of having a lack of humility. Pride is a sin. It manifests itself in many ways. We can think that we are too good for something, that we are above the station that we really are. And the call of the gospel comes contrary to this, that instead of you building all of your life on seeking yourself, Jesus says, die to yourself, follow me, then you will truly live. Throughout this book, Peter has called us to various forms of submission. Submission is a word that we as Americans generally hate. We don't like the idea that we should ever have to submit to anyone. And we've walked through that throughout this book, and I've given you many caveats on the issue of submission. But we must note that all godly submission requires humility. Proud people never submit. Christians cannot be like that. And so here the call to humility in the face of persecution takes two important forms. First, it is a call to trust God with your life. We are to live consciously, quote, under the mighty hand of God. We are to know that all of our days and our nights, our comings and our goings, our successes and our failures, our ecstatic joys and our best days and those deep, dark, worst days of our lives, all of those exist under the mighty hand of the sovereign God. He controls our paths. He wrote all the days of your life and my life before you were even born in his book. And this means we are to trust God when we face persecution because, quote, at the proper time, he will exalt you. At the proper time, God will raise you up. He gives and he takes and blessed, blessed remains his name. We must never think that suffering is somehow below us. That rejection is somehow below the Christian who follows the stone that was rejected. 
that being an outcast is never for us. When we think those things, we start to fear man more than we fear God. Instead, we must trust our lives to the mighty hand of God, and that requires humility. To know that I ultimately do not control my life. This is closely tied to a second thing that Peter gets at here. Pride leads to anxiety about our troubles. Peter commands us here, be humble and cast all of your anxieties upon God. Not some of them, but all of them. Far from the psychologized version of man that reduces him to impersonal biochemical functions in his body, or a highly conditioned trained animal, you are a person who is made in the image of the Almighty God. That means even when things are going wrong, even when the chemicals in your body are slightly off balance, you still are a moral creature who can make decisions one way or the other. If man is special at all, then he cannot be reduced to chemicals or being another animal. God has made you in his image. You are therefore valuable. You are therefore fundamentally different than everything else that exists. And so he writes to a church that is literally being killed for their faith. And he says, even in that deep darkness, you can cast your anxieties upon God. And that's what humility looks like. This is the dirty little secret about much of our anxiety that we face in our day-to-day lives. It stems from us trying to replace God with ourselves. We desperately want to grab everything to control it. And the more we try to squeeze it, it slips through our fingers and we get anxious because the more we try to control things, we realize that we can't even really even control our own emotions. The Bible says, take those things, throw them onto God. Trust Him. Humble yourself, realizing that you can't control your life. But there's a God who does. And He is good. Cast your anxieties upon God. The Lord. That is our first internal threat. That threat is pride, a forgetting of God and a trying to fix everything by ourselves. That is a path of anxiety, of despair, and it is a lack of faith. Peter now moves on to an external threat, verse 8. So humble yourselves first. Now let's look outside of ourselves. Be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan is your opponent. He is your enemy. And he is pictured here as a hungry lion looking for some sheep to eat. This is the heart of this passage. That Satan is here, he is active, and he is busy targeting Christians. Sometimes we we live in such a bubble here that we think that most of the persecution of the church happened in the first century. And we have plenty of evidence of all the, the terrible things from Christians being burned alive on crosses to being fed to wild animals. All of those things happened. But by those who keep track of such things, that this last hundred years has been the most bloody for Christians in all of history. Like More Christians have died as martyrs in the last century than all of the other times of church history. Like we live, thankfully, in a bubble. We don't see that. But that is the reality of being in the church. Satan is hungry and he is seeking to destroy. The focus here is on his weapon of suffering 
in persecution. The targeting of Christ's people by threatening them with their lives. That through earthly suffering, Satan hopes to remove us from our God. This is the story of the book of Job. Why did Job suffer? Because he was unfaithful? No, but because he was faithful. And so Satan goes up to God and he says, let me, let me run a test here. I bet I can get Job to curse you if you just let me take all of his good things away. You need to think about that. Why did Job suffer? He suffered not because he was unfaithful, but because he was faithful. And Satan then targeted him. Same goes on today. Satan uses the threat of suffering to try to get us to compromise or to act in fear or to despair and to give up. This has been his tactic. It will remain his tactic. And we must be humble enough to acknowledge that this Satan exists and he is functioning today. We cannot give in to a naturalist view of the world that everything can be explained by physical causes. This universe is both physical and spiritual. And those two realities are far more related than we like to think, and not in the way that Hollywood would portray it or some very extreme forms of charismatic theology would portray it. The spiritual world and the physical world are together. They are both created realities that God upholds. And so we get this picture of Satan and his functioning in this world in Revelation chapter 12. In chapter 12 of Revelation, he's not pictured as a lion, but as a great dragon. And this great dragon is at war with the angels in heaven, and God casts him down to the earth. And there he is, down on the earth, and he is waiting, waiting for the Christ, the Messiah, to be born. And the picture in Revelation 12 is literally that as this woman is giving birth, the dragon is there with his mouth open, waiting to eat the child. That's the spiritual reality. If you've read your Gospels, how does he do this? Through King Herod. King Herod is there trying to find this child that is born. Can't find him. So the dragon then gets King Herod to kill all the other children in that area. Because he couldn't get the one he wanted. Using the power of corrupt and evil governments has ever been the method, the chosen method of Satan. If you go from Revelation 12 to Revelation 13, the dragon stands upon the shore of the sea and he calls forth two beasts. If you read chapter 13, the two beasts are very clearly governmental powers. This has always been his tactic. And thus, throughout church history, the number one enemy of the church throughout its history has been evil states or governments. From Rome burning Christians alive, to communist China, just straight out killing them. This is what they do. This is what the dragon or the lion does. But we get some comfort, if you want to call this comfort, in verse 9. Some comfort for you. These things happen knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. In this we find comfort because there's a community of faith bigger than this church, and we're all in this together. There is camaraderie here with one another. As I've said before, you have more in common with a Christian in Africa than you do with an unbeliever in America. Your fundamental unity is in Christ, not 
your ethnicity, not your country of origin, but in Christ. And so the story continues on. Good versus evil. Christ versus the serpent. The saints who are only saints by grace through faith versus the wicked. The offspring of the woman versus the offspring of the serpent. And again, I say to you, there is no neutral territory in this universe. You're either on the one side or you're on the other. But we should take hope here because as we identify with the community of Christ on this earth, we are also identifying with Christ Himself. There's a war going on over God's good creation as Christ redeems it. Christ is the fountain of life. He is the source of all things. He is the creator and sustainer. Contrary to that, Satan is the destroyer and the perverter of all good things. Like, as others have put it, what we're dealing with today is what we call a culture of death. God loves a culture of life. And this goes well beyond abortion. That's just one aspect of the culture of death today. Why do we have such a culture of death? Because we are under the influence of the king of death. The irrational absurdities of our days testify to that this conflict is ongoing and it is basically around how we understand reality. It is understanding it as either made by God or as meaningless in a random accident. There are so many today who are currently under the influence of the prince of the power of the air. And he has come back to his earth, Christ that is, and he has declared, it is mine and I'm taking all of it back. That's the job of the church. Christ, right before he goes up into heaven, he says, all power in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go. This is all mine, he says. I own all of it. Now you go take it back. And the church has been doing that for 2,000 years. This world is Christ's, all of it, and he will win. That then gives us our response in verse 6 and 9. What is our response to these internal and external threats? Well, first, the response to the internal threat of pride is to humble yourselves before God. It is to cast those anxieties upon Him. It is to trust God with your problems and to trust God with your salvation. We are given a reason why we should trust God right here when He says this. You can trust God because, quote, He cares for you. If you want any more encouraging words in the Bible, I don't know if you'll find them. God cares for you. Why should you trust Him? He cares for you. This is not a detached God who doesn't care what's happening to His people. This is not a God like you find in the Roman pantheon, Zeus or Venus or Hades, who are always interfering in the lives of men so that they could get what they wanted. This is a God who cares for His people. This is what marks off the Christian God from just about every other religion in the world. It's not only His holiness and His eternality or His all-powerful nature, it is the goodness He has for His people, so much so that He sends His own Son to die upon a cross. God cares for His people. Therefore, you can trust Him. To the external threat, there's a response, and this response is more communal than individual. Listen to verse 9. 
Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. How do you respond to a lion who wants to eat you? You resist him, both individually and corporately as a church. That's why this sermon is titled, Resist the Lion. What would God have you do right now in this age at this time? It is to look the lion in the eye and say, bring it on. I'm not scared of you. I'm not scared of what you can do to me. How did the first century church say, go ahead, throw me to lions, I'm not going to recant Christ. Go ahead, burn me alive on a cross, I'm not going to recant Christ. Because Christ took away Satan's main tool, which was death when he rose again from the dead. So we are called to resist the lion because we know that Christ has won, is winning, and will win. We resist him, as we just sang, because we know that, the, that for Satan, his doom is sure. It's not maybe he'll lose in the end. No, it's been sealed. And so my call to you is wherever you find the lies of the evil one, resist it with truth. Wherever you may be prone to despair, or to give up, or to compromise, or to be anxious, resist. Resist him firm in your faith. This is what it means to walk in faith in a weird age. It is to be uncompromisingly aligned with Christ and His truth. I know that we live in times that could best be described as uncertain. It seems like every other day there's some new thing that happens. and Turmoil breaks out. It seems within the church that we seem hell-bent in endlessly dividing and fracturing and some attempt to distance ourselves from one another so that we are eaten last or something like that. That's not what we're called to do. Not called to resist one another, but to resist Him. The evil seems so strong, it claims that it is destined for victory. But if you're reading your Bible well, you know that that's all a lie. And contrary to the gelatin preaching that comes from many effeminate pulpits in America, Christianity is not a religion of compromise or defeat. It never has been. It never will be. So Christ, in responding to Peter's declaration in the Gospels, Peter says, you are the Christ. Jesus looks at him, and he says this, and I tell you, Peter, the guy who wrote this letter, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So why is Peter telling us to resist? Well, Jesus told him. Jesus looked him in the eye and said, I'm going to build my church upon this rock and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now sometimes we misunderstand this verse because we think it's yeah, Satan's going to attack us and he's not going to win. But it's actually us attacking the gates of hell. Gates are a defensive thing. You hide behind gates. The church goes and takes the gates of hell. This is the kind of bold faith you and I are called to have. Not living in fear of a lion. Not living in fear of a culture that's weird at best and insane at worst. But resisting evil with a happy confidence. Because this is not just pennies we're playing for. 
This is the world. This is the mission. I want to read to you. I've read these words to you before, but I'm going to read them to you again. The words of Winston Churchill. Facing impossible odds in the face of the evil of Nazism. He had no reason to think that his island wasn't going to be taken next at this point. This is what he said to his people. And this is how pastors should talk to their people. Even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or may fall into the grip of the the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on till the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and the oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And even if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to rescue and liberate the old. He was just fa- facing Hitler. Like, yeah, Hitler's bad, but there's a greater bad behind Hitler. We need to think in those types of terms. To care less about being winsome or likable and to care more about saying we're going to win and we're not going to give up. Because we will fight, not only on beaches or in the streets, but in our pulpits, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our culture. Now please note that I'm talking about a different kind of fighting than taking guns and killing people. We have a problem with dealing with analogy in today's world. Someone like me says that and they think I'm inciting violence. I am not inciting violence. We will fight as our Lord has fought. And we do so to respond to the evil of our day, knowing the devouring lion is behind it all. And and note this also. He's not just going to devour Christians. He's devouring unbelievers too. We fight for them too. Stand firm. Act like men. Act like you believe Jesus has won and is winning. Because he has and he is. And pray to him for courage. What kind of message can instill that courage? Look at verses 10 and 11. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's an external hope. Like you're not trusting in your faith. You're not trusting in your strength, in your cunning. You're trusting that at the right time, God will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And you can trust Him because He has dominion over everything forever and ever. So note that God says, resist the lion. He doesn't say that you're going to win right away. How does the church go from 500 nobodies in a backwater part of the Roman Empire billions of followers across 2,000 years and quite literally 
Christianity is the most important shaping force of world history. Right? I don't, it's not just me who thinks that. Go read Tom Holland, Atheist Historian, Dominion. If you think things like equal rights and human rights and that governments shouldn't just use power however they want, if you think any of those things came about in world history except through Christianity, you've been lied to. Right? Romans, Romans would have looked at you and laughed at the idea that all people are equal because they didn't believe it. No one believed it until Christianity overthrew the Roman Empire with never lifting a sword. How do these things happen? Well, because God has promised that they will happen. To restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. We can have a firmness in resisting the lion because God through Christ is for us. He is for you. Death has lost its sting. Christ has risen again. Christ is coming back. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. He is the ruler of all things, and all things will be remade by him. Therefore, brothers and sisters, don't flinch. Satan is an accuser, and he's a liar. Those are the two things he likes to do. He likes to accuse people, and he likes to trick them. God has given you his word so you can know that, one, you are forgiven. Even though you still sin, God's blood Christ's blood has covered that. You are now declared wholly innocent in him. The accuser can no longer accuse you. And two, he defeats his lies by telling you the truth in his word. God wins through Christ. The Lord saves, the dragon loses, and that must generate in us a bold confidence to resist the lion in everything that he is doing, for Christ will have dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have spoken to us in your word. We know that there is an evil one out there who seeks to do evil throughout this world, but especially towards your people. Lord, may you help us to live in light of the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died in our place, that our sins are forgiven, that he has overthrown the power of death and Hades and the evil one. Lord, may you work out your, your will and your power in the lives of those at Christ Bible Church, in our families, in our workplaces, in our state, in our nation, and in our world. And Lord, may you hasten the day when Christ returns and we would see his dominion in fullness forever and ever. Amen.